And thus, two important actors, that's probably the wrong word, two important things, variables, enter the Star Trek canon. Ensign Rolaren and the Bajora. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's so weird. They never say that again. Every time the Bajorans come up henceforth, it's the Bajorans or Bajor, but not the Bajora. What's funny is they actually screwed up even in this episode. If you pay attention, there's a few scenes where someone will refer to them as the Bajorans, and then in the same scene, the Bajora. It's, you can tell they were just kind of still making this up as they went here. I could also mention that there are other inconsistencies, because this is Star Trek and they hadn't made any of this up yet. They mentioned how, you know, the Cardassian Union took over Bajor and kicked all the Bajorans out. Honestly, that probably would have been better than what actually happened, but no, as we learn, and, you know, thanks to DS9 and future episodes, no, the occupation happened. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a bit here where they mention they have dozens of settlements within the sector, and this is a border with the Cardassians. I know that the Federation is really settlement-happy, but why did they decide to have tons of settlements here? Also, quick side note, this episode occurs on the Cardassian border, which is way over here. In four episodes, we're going to Romulus, which is way up here. Anyways, before I move any further, I do want to talk about behind-the-scenes stuff like I usually do. They wanted, they, Micropillar... And uh, and Rick Berman, actually, so I'll give him credit on this one. Both wanted someone who was a variable to the mix of the regular crew. Now, unfortunately, Roe is only in, I believe, eight episodes total on TNG, uh, which actually kind of sucks. I was always, always kind of hoping she would at least poke up in DS9, but no. Forbes kind of went on to do her own career thing. Maybe she was too expensive. I don't know. Point being that they never really did much with the Rolaren character. Nah, that's, that's the wrong way to say that. They did actually do some good stuff with her by memory. They just didn't do enough. I was, I was hoping we would see more of her, just my opinion. What I do want to mention, though, is I, I applaud the inclusion of her into the cast. How many of you guys have family? No, 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 no. I, I don't mean someone who is biologically related to you. I mean family. One of the things that I've found consistently true is that amongst family there are disagreements. Now that's part of life. It doesn't mean that we hate each other, and it doesn't mean that we, you know, you know ah, I'm going to hold this grudge against you forever. It just means that we have disagreements, arguments, and generally don't look at things the same way. Even my sister, who is probably one of the people I am closest to in the world, nevertheless disagrees with me on many significant points, and I with her. That's what Roe is. That's the key integral part of the family of the TNG main cast, which has been missing to date. For the most part, everyone kind of agrees with each other. Everyone's on the same line. And that's fine in its own right, within reason. This is one of the things that Deep Space Nine would very accurately use, uh, or rather misuse. I'm trying to think of phrases. Basically, Deep Space Nine would deliberately introduce non-Starfleet people so that disagreements and, and, and you know, differing perspectives would be built into the mix. And that would be developed over time as well, as DS9 slowly expanded its cast and its retinue. But TNG, as much as I absolutely adore TNG, and I really do, rewatching this show has really reminded me how much I love this series, it never really had that same feel. Barkley doesn't quite fit in in the same way, but that's a little bit different. And, well, I guess that's it. It's Barkley and Roe, right? That's, that's our options. 
I just, I feel like this was an excellent thing, is what I'm trying to say. I feel like this is an excellent inclusion into the mythos of Star Trek in general, and to TNG in specific. Because it's not like she isn't Starfleet. One of the things that I've always championed the idea of, in real life as well as in fiction, is the idea of being unified because of how different we are. You know, just because you and I disagree on what foods are good, doesn't mean we don't both enjoy food. You know, it, it's, it's the Mass Effect ideal, right? I've talked about this so many times. And so I love the idea that Roe is a competent Starfleet officer who still has a decent sense of right and wrong, but she approaches it from a different angle. She is a bit abrasive at first, of course, but a lot of that, as we see, is, based, is because of the fact that she has been so maligned by everyone she interacts with that she just kind of throws up that spiked wall. I really love the scene where they're in 10 forward and Crusher and Troy try to go ahead and reach out to her. And she says no. So they politely leave. Then it cuts to Jordy, who is being a lot less polite about it. So she doesn't even deserve to wear that uniform. And then Guinan says, huh, I'm going to go meet her. And just walks right over and sits down. And what happens then is that Guinan, who is an excellent judge of character in general, very accurately deduces everything going on with Roe. There's an episode over in Voyager, I don't remember the name, please forgive me, where Tuvok is adequately analyzed in almost the same fashion. Because if Tuvok wanted to be alone like he protests, then he could be. He has his quarters which he can lock. But no, he chooses to be out here on display, out in uniform, not participating, to show how distant he is, because that's something he wants. I love that episode, by the way. It's a very good episode. Which, of course, leads me to Roe. And the same general analysis happens here with Guinan to Roe. The idea that Roe wants to show other people, you know, it wants to be that kind of thing, wants to be like, look, <laughs> I don't fit. And basically, it boils down to something that she herself mentions later when she gives her wonderful heartwarming story. Heartwarming is probably the wrong word. Heartrending story to Picard. I don't want to be the one who backs down. And so all the Starfleet hates her? Fine. I'm right here. And she just kind of shoves it in their faces. Now, when she actually starts working with the team, and this will actually happen in future episodes too, she still has the same attitude, but she is much less abrasive about it because she has come to realize that these people are not enemies. See, that's the key distinction. Throughout much of the early part of this episode, Roe treats everyone else on the crew, except for Guinan, as an enemy. It is Guinan who tries to reach out to her, and thus forms the bridge between her and the crew via Picard. Because only someone like Guinan can vouch for her. You ever heard of the saying, it's all about who you know? That is astonishingly true, and has been throughout all of human society, and in all of human history. So much of, of how we interact with other people is dependent on how those people are vouched for, are vetted for by other people. And that has led to many, many problems in, in t life, too. But, for example, if someone I trust implicitly came to me and said, Lore, this person's all right, and it's someone I didn't like, I'd be like, okay, okay. And I'd, and I'd give him a shot. Because I trust that person, so I'm going to give that person a shot, because they said I should. And that may be a mistake. Because not everyone has the same you know, web of, of variables when it comes to judging other people. But I would still at least give it a shot, just like Picard does to Roe. And you can almost see how Picard warms up to Roe 
as she finally drops all facades and is just herself. She just is bluntly honest with him and open about him, about her motivations and about what she's been doing. And Picard, well, similarly, just kind of lowers the defenses a little bit over the course of the scene. As ever, excellent praise to Patrick Stewart, but also to Michelle Forbes, who is actually quite a good actress. I, unfortunately, I haven't seen her in a lot of things, but every time I've seen her, she knows how to do a fairly good and nuanced and, and gradient portrayal. And we see that here. I know I'm skipping forward massively in my notes, please forgive me, but this line of thought has to be followed to its conclusion because this is all about why I think Roe was an excellent inclusion into the show. And I have to comment on the meta aspect, too. Pillar, in particular, was very adamant about the idea that Roe would be bridged by Guinan to Picard so that Guinan, who is a very beloved character at this point in history you know, amongst TNG fans and Star Trek people in general, would thereby basically turn to the audience and say, okay, hey, guys, she's cool, thus allowing the audience to accept Roe. See, for those of you not aware, Sela, there was a lot more mixed reaction to her when she came out. You know, obviously time, I mean, it's been like almost two decades. It's actually, excuse me, it's been over two decades since uh, Redemption came out. Time has obviously changed and altered people's perception. But at the time, you know, interviews, letters, uh, and all that sort of thing, sort of, sort of showed that people were just kind of like, mm, when it came to Sela. However, people pretty much fully embraced Roe, and I think the usage of Guinan in this factor it was the key reason as to why. Because everyone likes Guinan. <laughs> I like Guinan, right? Don't you? You like Guinan, right? No, I'm kidding. You don't have to like Guinan. Although, it is worth noting, and I don't mean to call anyone out this, but I've never known anyone who didn't like Guinan. Now, Roe, right at the beginning, uh, we find out that Roe, Picard says, no, I don't want Roe on my ship. And then the Admiral says, yeah, I had to pull some things to get her out of prison. It's actually a nice, quick and dirty exposition. Fun fact, we never actually, if I'm not mistaken, we never find out the full story, not counting, uh, I think it was a comic covered that in the future. So we never actually find out on camera the full story of what happened with Roe. I think that's actually a good thing, because as Roe herself kind of puts, puts out there, it doesn't matter. What happened was she disobeyed orders, people died. She got court-martialed, the end. And that really is all there is to it. It's not like she was malicious or treasonous. It's not like, you know, she, uh, I don't know, I don't know what else to put there. <laughs> it's not like she was a bad guy. She was negligent in her duty, and lives were lost as a consequence. What I like about that, as horrible as that may sound, is A, it kind of shows how Starfleet deals with people who, well, do that kind of thing in the line of duty, but B, and more importantly, you could see how much that weighs on Roe herself. When she relates that story, it's clear it bothers her. And in most respects, she is portrayed as someone who clearly just doesn't, has never really fully accepted the fact that that's on her. The way she portrays it, this is never said out, route, out loud, but the way she portrays it, the, the performance of the tonality says, I screwed up, people died. The end. It's on her. Or literally... She thinks it's on her. We don't know the full circumstances. And, of course, Starfleet obviously agreed with her. But then again, we find out she never chose to defend herself. Now, that's important. When it comes to a court-martial, if you walk up and say, plead guilty, trial's over. Like, that's just kind of how that happens. It's, it's, it's usually a formality, because almost everyone pleads innocent. But if you walk up there and say, plead guilty, the trial doesn't happen. You could argue it wasn't even a court-martial. It was just, you're guilty of this, all right, well, here's the... And, and then they, they effectively rule summarily, right? 
who knows what would have happened if she had chose to try to defend herself. Maybe there would have been mitigating circumstances, because that's life. We don't know. Because she believes she was guilty. At least that's my take on it. So then Riker demands she take off the earring. That's a dick move. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have pointed out many instances where I like Riker throughout the series. I have also pointed out a few where I really dislike Riker. The way he treated Barkley, uh, all the way back when Barkley first showed up. Uh, Hollow Pursuits, I believe. That's a good example of Riker just kind of being a dick. Well, here's another example. Now, we get why he's doing it. It's because dress code is something that is at the purview of commander. This is a common thing even in real-life military. So in other words, even though there is a dress code, that's like a baseline, not an absolute. In other words, Worf's thing, that's okay. Troy's outfit, that's okay. You know, Geordi's thing, that's okay. It depends on the circumstances and the specifics, but Riker isn't willing to give her any flack because she's a horrible person. Ergo, take off your damn earring. It's still a dick move, if I'm just being blunt. As a further aside, I've had several people ask why she has it on the left ear. It's because she doesn't believe in the prophets, although that is obviously information that was made up after the fact. It's not, and I point this out because, as we'll find out much later in DS9's era, uh, Bajorans who wear the earrings on the left ear all, tend to be the sign of those who are followers of the Pa Wraiths. No, Roe is not a follower of the Pa Wraiths. She's just someone who is not a follower of the prophets. It got some kind of con As I said, they were still inventing the Bajorans at this point in time, but whatever. That's the retcon answer for that. <sighs> now, I've already given praise to Michelle Forbes' uh, acting. A lot of good body language, a lot of good tonality. I also like... I like how they have this meeting. This... I, okay, can I be honest with you guys for a second? I thought about not talking about this because I'm white and, and male and, and heterosexual. And I'm, I've gotten so many times when I've said something about a controversial topic and I've been told that I have no right to even discuss that. And I, that's still been a problem to this very day. But there's a scene where what basically happens is they talk about this one Bajoran who's a wonderful Bajoran, who's this great person, and they, they, he's an ideal candidate. I don't actually know the real term for this. This is a real concept. It's someone who's basically a face, who's been acclimated to acceptable culture from whatever their original base culture is, and thus everyone from the accepted culture group therefore prefers to interact with that person. Now, in real life, that's been used for a number of different reasons in a number of different ways, most of which are horrible. In this case, it's pretty clear that this is just a Bajoran who has basically flat out said he's going to assimilate into greater Federation culture and just kind of accepted that. But you'll notice how everyone mentions he's so diplomatic and he's so charming and he knows his stuff, and he seems in all ways the ideal candidate. It is Roe who points out the obviousness of the situation, that he is the worst possible candidate because they're here to actually accomplish real actions not talk. Now, let me explain that for a moment. There's nothing wrong with talk. Talk's a good thing. Social communication is an excellent example of uh, one of the fundamental constructs of existence as far as I'm concerned. But talk with nothing else is just talk, right? Talk has to be backed by something. Talk has to be supported. Talk has to be acted upon. So this guy will talk, but nothing will come of that. He has no connections no power, no authority, and none of the rest of the Bajoran uh, people in general, never mind the militia or the uh, re resistance groups or terrorist groups, actually give a damn about this guy, as Roe herself points out. Now, you need to talk to someone who is willing to talk, 
but also actually capable of action. You need to go down one step, not two. Hence why someone like Roe is very useful for this sort of situation, because she actually offers up someone who is, uh, well, as the episode makes clear, and it's wonderfully subtle, by the way, she offers up someone who is basically power-hungry. He effectively functions as a local warlord. Now, he's not to the full extent of what is usually meant when that word is stated, but he's certainly someone who wants to set himself up as his own private fiefdom. And we see that in the way he acts and the way Roe counteracts to him. Furthermore, he is someone who has much more practical perspective on things, but, critically, is willing to talk. So they, so I, I love that scene. I, I'm sorry for commenting on this, but I do love this scene because the reality of the situation is basically slammed into the group by Roe. What I find even better about the scene is Roe did not volunteer this information. She was just sitting over to the side thinking to herself how stupid this was. It is Riker who calls her out that effectively leads her to then defending her position by pointing out the truth of this. And, and this is one of the other things I like about this scene, Picard takes her word on this. Rather than going with the trusted choice, which has like three of her, his own staff accepting it, he accepts her offer, and that ends up being the one that works. So they go down and they see this Bajoran camp. There's actually a really great bit of visual imagery where she takes off her uniform, outer coat, and put it on the girl. I, I put out the visual imagery thing because that uniform in real life has a zipper on the back, actually, and yet she opens it up from the front because they're not supposed to have zippers on, in the future, you know? It's just a little bit of showcasing. I just thought we'd point that out while we're here. Anyways. So then they talk and they see the Bajoran camp. And two things are brought up that will become adamant part of the Bajoran society in the future. One, that these people have been going through hell ever since the occupation. Yeah. I, I don't feel the need to add any more to that. I've talked about that plenty over on DSpace 9. B... That the Bajoran people are old, like they have been, they've basically been more advanced than the humans up to a certain point and then were immediately surpassed by humanity and most of everyone else. This has actually come up several times over on Deep Space Nine, the idea that they have been, you know, a society of a relatively, uh, let's call it a modern real day level of advancement for the millennia range and then they never developed past that for reasons that are never adequately explained. If I'm honest, that's always bothered me about Bajoran society. I, I don't get why they do that, but whatever. Point being, it's kind of cool that they establish that right here, right at the beginning. Although they they are excessively exaggerative about it, because he mentions that you know, oh, they've been Bajorans have been you know at the Roman era since we were at the not walking upright era, which would put that at around 5,000 BC, give or take, which is a long freaking time ago. <sighs> Anyways. Maybe, maybe the orb of time got involved. I don't know. Now, as they're there, Roe says several things. And what I find interesting is she, once again, holds nothing back. She is bluntly honest, but not to the point of crudeness, which is a very important thing. I've talked about this several times before. It's important to be honest. I talked about this on the, the, uh, the nth degree. There's a difference between being cruel and being overly polite. There's a middle ground there, and I think Roe hits that very nicely, because she is honest, but not to the point of brusqueness, which she could have been. She could have been very abrasive. And I like that. I also like how Picard flat out says, we've got a starship in orbit. Get the replicators working. Get these people supplies. Get these people blankets. And 
I like to think personally that supply is also meant food. I don't know if that's true because oftentimes supplies is often differentiated from specifically perishables, for example. So either way, I like that because that is a practical, immediate application of aid, which is something the Federation is and always has been willing to give to the Bajorans. It's just the more long-term thing that they've been having problems with, which, well... To be perfectly blunt, that'll be coming up again in TNG, and I've already discussed this in DS9. So, let's just move on for now. Quick thing I want to mention, though. He mentions, you know, the Federation does not uh, get involved in the internal affairs of other people. Uh, that doesn't even begin to make sense to me, if I'm just being completely blunt. Let's do a bit of a timeline thing really quick, okay? Bajor has been occupied for about 50 years. There's conflicting information about that, but we could say it's been about 50 years. So, from about 30-ish years after Star Trek VI, at which point in time the Federation was entering you know, the beginnings of its golden era, and had a fleet that you know didn't really... They weren't at war with anyone. The Klingons of the Federation had finally started to settle down. All that stuff was happening. Uh, the Romulans had, at that point, basically bowed out of reality, with the exception of their final interview. You know, so, in other words... There was no big threat. There was no existential crisis for the Federation at this point in time. In this point in time, the Cardassian Union decides to annex the Bajoran system. Now, if the Bajorans had, and there's no reason to believe that they hadn't, reached out and said, help! Why didn't the Federation get involved in that? The excuse that is given multiple times, including in this episode, as well as other places, notably on Deep Space Nine, is that it was purely an internal affair, which is... I think I've ranted about that enough on the Redemption videos, but I think you get the idea of where I'm going with this. One power conquering another power isn't an internal affair unless you really decide to legalize in a way that basically says, not my problem. <laughs> you can't tell me that the Bajorans didn't say help and the Federation basically just said, I, I have nothing else to add to that. <laughs> I just wanted to comment on it because it's kind of horrifying. Because it's easy to look at the more modern era and it makes more sense because the modern era of the Federation at this point in time is a lot more inclined to adhere to the treaty in the, in the face of overwhelming reality. I've ranted and talked about this many times on DS9 and on TNG both. That they must maintain the treaty even though, you know, there's obviously problems with that, right? That makes sense now. And it does make sense that the Federation would move more towards political, economic, industrial, and social pressure to try and push the Union off Bajor, which they do eventually succeed at doing so in Season 6, I want to say. But that doesn't change the fact that 50 years ago, 49 years ago at this point, they had the opportunity to do something about it, and for the last 49 years. And for 49 years, haven't. One Starfleet captain with his one ship, with no external force or authorization whatsoever, provided food and supplies to this camp. Where's the relief missions that should be regularly happening to help these people? And don't tell me all of the Bajorans would say no to that. I'm sure some would. I'm sure some would flat out say, no, I don't want your frickin' handouts. And I get that. But as is shown in this episode, some of them are willing to accept that kind of outside help. So where is it? <sighs> So then the episode moves forward. 
forgive me for ranting for a moment. Episode moves forward. We see the row scenes. I've already talked about that extensively. I don't have actually much else to add to that. Although I do have one little tidbit I forgot to mention. And it's a nice little touch. Guinan makes a logical sense to reach out to Ro for two reasons. In character, because she kind of likes that kind of unusual perspective thing. And out of character, because that way you know we could address I already talked about that. But there's one other thing that never really clicked with me until I was rewatching this episode. I think I missed this line before. She mentions, you and I both understand what it's like to lose our homes. I think that resonated with Ro quite a bit. Someone who literally understands what she's been through. After all, Guinan lost her home to the Borg. And yeah, what else needs to be said there? So Ro, of course, does want to talk. And, and she does talk with Guinan, and then Guinan pretty much says, Hi, here's Ro. And Picard's pissed, but yeah, like I said, he's like, Okay, I'm going to give you a shot. So Ro talks to him, he talks to her, he opens up to her. I get the feeling that he starts to see basically the beginnings of an officer in her. This seems to be true with how he, how their relationship is presented for the next eight episodes, or excuse me, next seven episodes. But in general, she does exhibit several command line qualities. It's, I mean, she does have a red shirt on, after all. And I kind of like that Picard, once he is willing to lose his own biases in the matter, just sort of automatically senses that in her and notices that, because he is a good judge of character, but he also has his own blind spots. Picard is very much someone who is... Well, one of his biggest weaknesses is his tendency to stonewall, for example. So, she admits that she was supposed to offer this guy ships and weapons. I'm sorry, ships? <laughs> weapons I could buy. There's a lot of ways to hide that. How do you hide providing these people ships? Especially since, I remind you, this is still in the wake of Wolf 359, when an overwhelming amount of mass production of ships and re retrofitting is still happening in order to, to get the fleet going again. A process that will be happening for, I believe, let me, let me think about this for a second, seven more years, give or take. That, that, that just this massive reconstruction of the fleet. So he's willing to offer ships? I'm sorry, what? Anyways. <clears throat> so then she mentions the story where she was offered candy by the Cardassian, which... Is just messed up because, you know, then she was led to watch her father be tortured to death. And she was ashamed that he begged, ashamed that he was weak, and ashamed to be Bajoran. I can't even begin to comprehend what that would feel like, and I know that. I've been through a lot of hells in my life, but I have never had to watch someone be tortured. I've never had to be the one who was not a, you know, being tortured. I don't know how to phrase that. You know, I, I, don't, I have no idea what that would be like. I can't even imagine someone trying to deliberately break down someone I cared for and loved like that and what I would feel in that moment. What I think I like most about her reaction is her... <sighs> the fact that she, in that moment, perceived herself as weak specifically for being Bajoran, that her people was being demonstrated as weak to her, and that became a fact of her existence all the way up until the modern era, and that she no longer wishes that to be a fact, hence her desire to do something about this. It is only her own desire to do the right thing, her own sense of morality, that gets in the way of that, and indeed her own uncertainty, and, let's not dismiss this, 
the effect and attentions of one person reaching out to her and embracing her and accepting her and giving her actual respect that allowed her to say, well, okay. And thus then, this bridge between Guinan and Picard to row now allows Picard to be the next bridge, him reaching out to her, which he does pretty much for the rest of the episode, especially in the final scene. It's actually a very good scene as he talks to her because it would be too easy in a typical Hollywood fashion for him to say, you're great, and you're promoted, bam, you're captain of the Enterprise. <sighs> I'm looking at you, Star Trek 2009. But that is a very Hollywood thing to do. You know, we see that this person has, has qualities and cap captaincy, blah, 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 and bam, they're just shoved up the ranks. But what he does instead is a far more realistic, believable take. Someday, with work, you could make this happen. And he's right. She is, in my opinion, command line material. There's a reason she was supposed to be the major over on Deep Space Nine, right? So, he, he offers her two things that she basically can't say no to. And he does it, I think, very deliberately. The first is he offers her friendship. He, he effectively embraces her, just like Guinan did. And the second thing he offers her is a challenge. And you can tell she just jumps on that one. I don't have much else to say here. I do love how how satisfying it was for Picard to just smack down Kennelly. It's always nice to see Picard just kind of win by going through the system. It's very satisfying. I do have one last complaint here, and I'm sorry, because I do like this episode overall, but i got to point this out. Why all this deception to get rid of this one Bajoran? Now, I know what you're saying. He was a terrorist, Lord. They wanted to get rid of him. They send two Galor Mark III's after this, top-of-the-line warships, because they obviously haven't made the Keldons yet. Those two ships could probably take on the Enterprise-D. Now, they're not going to, but I'm just giving you an idea of their overall firepower and capacity. Uh, they kill his supposed ship in two shots. Maybe it's three. It's very few. <laughs> Less than five. His ships are not warp-capable. I know I've hammered this point to the ground, but having warp capability is kind of essential in a galactic community. <laughs> I don't even think I need to explain this. It would be kind of like the equivalent of having to... Oh, God. My point is, the episode portrays it as though they're worried about him being a terrorist and the damage he might cause to the Cardassians, but the nearest Cardassian colony is would be like a four-and-a-half-year trip that way. Why do they care? In short, I think that is the, one of the biggest flaws of the episode because they have to not be warp capable in order for the, the deduction of the mystery to be making sense. But if they're not warp capable, then the reasoning, the motive, doesn't make sense. Now that being said, I do have my own headcanon here, and it is headcanon, and I, I just want to make that clear. But if I was feeling like headcanning this, I would say that it actually has nothing to do with him or his ships or the threat of them, but rather just doing what Cardassians tend to do putting down another Bajoran. In other words, look at your pathetic Bajoran. The, the Federation, oh, the, so it, it's a PR stunt, okay? The Federation didn't support this guy and basically offered him up on a platter to the Cardassians, so the Federation are not your friends and they're not going to come save you. And even one of your more well-renowned terrorist leaders is not safe from Cardassian control. We were able to just sweep in and annihilate him. That's what I think could be inferred as to what they're going for, if I was willing to give the episode, you know, the credits for that. Otherwise, other than this significant plot hole, a fairly good episode which I rather enjoyed. I hope you did too. I'll see you next time.